Well, if you feel like I do, it's been a whirlwind, hasn't it? I've told folks you've been fed out of a fire hose. And you probably feel that way. But we had a lot to say in a short amount of time, so I appreciate your giving me that opportunity. And you have noticed, I think, that sometimes I can speak 150 miles an hour if needed. But most of the time, I try to slow down enough to emphasize points that need to be emphasized and to drive them home. I've been a teacher for a long time. I know very well you're not going to remember 99% of what I say. If you can remember one thing from each lecture that's been driven home, that'll be worth it. I hope the overall thrust of this lesson series has been to increase our appreciation, our honor for the God we serve. So two or three things I want to say before I start this afternoon for this last lecture. One is I want to recommend another book to you. This one is called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Norman Geisler and Frank Turek. Highly intelligent authors, they have spoken on this subject on the Harvard campus. That'll give you a clue. They've been all over openly espousing they don't have enough faith to be an atheist in front of a lot of atheists. We have just finished a series about two years ago at the congregation where I'm an elder where we use this book as the basis for a series for our teens. I highly recommend that to all of you. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. It covers everything from belief in God, belief in the Bible as the Word of God, belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and why we should believe those things and related topics. That wasn't in any of the specific lessons that I was having, so I didn't want to forget to introduce that. Secondly, Geisler, G-E-I-S-L-E-R, and Turek, T-U-R-E-K. My second point will answer that also. I'm going to leave a bibliography with Bryce. Brian, pardon me, <laughs> with Brian, that has all the books on it that I've referenced and a whole bunch more. Plus, it puts stars by the best ones. And the ones that I've highlighted are kind of highlighted in the bibliography. So you'll have that at your disposal, and it'll have that for you. Okay. I think that's all by way of introduction. Thank you again for being here. We have guests from some places, uh, far and near, and thank you for taking the time and the effort to be a part of this, and we hope that this lesson will kind of put a ribbon around things. Now, I will say to you that this lesson, as you can see from the title and from the reference to Scripture up here, is going to be more biblically based than the others. And I did that on purpose because typically the questions about this subject relate to how does this relate to the Bible's account of us and how do we fit with dinosaurs, right? Isn't that what everybody's interested in? I have a grandson that has more drawings of dinosaurs than anything else he does. I have another son that's an artist that does a lot of painting, and every painting has a dinosaur stuck somewhere in it. So I know how popular the subject is. So it'll be an enjoyable thing to talk about, 
believe me, I am no expert on dinosaurs. I understand that. That's not my field. I'm a chemist. I've done enough study to have a little bit to tell you and to hopefully point you in other directions if you want to study more deeply. I am going to focus on chemistry again, even in this lesson, so get over it. <laughs> As you will see. All right, let's turn to Genesis 1. Verse 20, then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind, every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1, 21-27. Of course, that is a part of the biblical account of creation in Genesis chapter one. So I start this way. This lesson is about dinosaurs. May I first say to you, please don't deny that there were dinosaurs. That's not a good position to take because you always lose when you fight against the facts. There were creatures that we have come to call dinosaurs. So if you have not visited the Dinosaur National Monument in near Vernal, Northeast Utah, there's a picture of it. It's a place you can go visit. And there are lots of other places like it where you will find this. That's in the rock inside that building. The building is built around where the formation is. These are pictures of some of the fossils that are trapped in the rock in that formation. And here, of course, is a human near these humongous bones to give you some idea of the size of those bones that are trapped in the rock, fossilized, hardened into rock. This particular formation has over 1,600 fossils, fossilized dinosaur bones buried in this fossil quarry. One of many dinosaur graveyards found in the vast Morrison Formation in our western states. With where you live, you probably know a whole lot more about this than I do. But there are several formations, including the Como Bluff, the Howe Quarries, the Fruit and the Dry Mesa Quarries in Colorado and Wyoming. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, there are lots of formations like this that contain massive graveyards of humongous bones. 
So don't deny fossils of dinosaurs because they are real. And there are lots of places you can go to see them. Here is a model of the Allosaurus dinosaur, one of the largest ones that's supposed to have existed. Understand, nobody found this guy lying somewhere, all put together. He's put together from lots of different bones that are pieced together from a formation. And uh, so there's some artist work here and some creativity, but there's a lot of hard evidence, if I may use that term, to support such a creature. Here's our cladogram for reptilia, the phylum to which dinosaurs belong. So I'm just going to briefly say reptilia is made up of these several different subfamilies, of which dinosaurs are one. You can see there's several different types of dinosaurs in that group. This is kind of an organization chart for biologists for how they classify organisms. So may I take a little side note here with you? I have an entire lesson that I do on classification. It is possible, ladies and gentlemen, to classify living things. I'm pausing. What I just said is very important. We can classify things into a system organized originally in the 1800s that starts with phylum and kingdom and phylum at the top and ends with, this is a class, what's at the bottom of this whole list of ways you organize at the bottom? Do anybody know? You know, I just, I'll help you. It's species. So phylum and kingdom are the largest organizational categories and species is the smallest. Now people, that is a man-made system Nobody's out there saying that these animals are labeled, I am a reptilia. We make that up. But it's based on the characteristics of these various living things. And you can organize them. You can organize them into these categories. If you can organize them into categories, then they are distinct enough to be different from one another. Right? The whole question is, let's take the lowest classification, species. The question then becomes, if God created living things, what did he create? Did he create every single species as men, mankind have identified them? Or was it some other level of our category system? Darwin's great book in the 1850s called Origin of What? The Species. The question was, did every species get created by a creator or could they have originated by natural causes? Right? That's the question. And prior to Darwin, the majority of the world, even the intellectual world, took the position that every species was created and that there was no crossing species lines. They are inviolate. They are distinct creatures from anything else. After Darwin, that whole thing changed. 
because it came to be believed that species can be produced without God by small changes over long periods of time guided by natural selection. That's the question. Well, that's the same question you have about this. But I would say to you, you need to think about this. If you can classify organisms into distinct groups of various types and then groups within groups within groups, then why wouldn't you think those are distinct separate groups that are not kin to each other? Just because you can classify them doesn't mean you have to be kin. It means you have a lot of common characteristics. So that's a whole separate question, and I wish I had an hour to talk to you about that. That's thrown in free of charge in this lecture. So here we have Dinosauria as a part of the classification of Reptilia, and here's a bunch of them that are classified within that, and I'll show you the picture of the dinosaur family tree as it's now laid out based on all these fossils that have been found. So kind of in broad brush, you can see big categories, Saurischians and Ornithians. Ornithians, that's one hard to pronounce. And then within those you have types, and within these you have types, and within these you have types, as you can see. And it's not my purpose today to go into all the kinds of dinosaurs. If I wanted to do that, I'd been my grandson. <laughs> and he could tell you more about that than I can. I want to talk about this for a minute. Are dinosaurs mentioned in the Bible? Of course, the typical viewpoint of the dinosaur time frame is that they lived long before man and they became extinct long before man came along. In fact, millions of years is the typical view. So the question is, are there dinosaurs in the Bible? Does it mention dinosaurs? Well, Exodus 20.11 says, The earth, the sea, and all that's in them were made by God. I just read you Genesis 1, and it said, The waters abound with living creatures. They're great sea creatures. The earth brings forth living creatures, cattle and the beasts of the earth. And I would say to you, those terms are broad enough to include all kinds of living creatures, including dinosaurs. So, wherever dinosaurs fit, they're fit in there somewhere. Because there's every kind of thing you want to talk about included in those. And, may I say to you again, were you listening closely when I read that? Can, let me read one section again. God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind. The cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and God saw it was good. And he said they were to reproduce after their kind. So class, what is a kind in that classification system? It's a species. Says who? No, God never used the word species. He used the word kind. Species is not a biblical word. It's a man-made word. And might I say to you that the definition of what a species is, is a little bit vague sometimes. With creatures that reproduce sexually, a new species occurs when this can no longer reproduce with that. That's a pretty easy definition. If you develop a creature that can no longer interbreed with this, 
then it's a different species. That's pretty typical definition. But what about creatures that don't reproduce sexually? They're asexual. That's a whole different ballgame. Defining species sometimes is a little challenging, folks. Like bacteria or other little organisms of various kinds. It's a little hard to separate those sufficiently to say this is a separate species. So it's a little vague. So to say that kind here is species is to step beyond what it says. Because look how broad these categories are. Cattle. I mean, what's cattle? Ladies and gentlemen, I know we think of cows out in the field. That's a much broader term than that. And what about creeping things? We have roaches in Florida. You have roaches? They're creeping things. But they also fly. So all I'm saying to you is to try to appoint what kind is in the Bible with a specific category of classifications that men have made is a little challenging. So would you accept that? So for me, I'm just telling you for me in my house, to say when something reproduced after its kind and that kind is limited, I'm absolutely convinced that's what God made. He made kinds and you don't go beyond kinds. And you're not going to produce anything new from this kind. It'll produce only its kind, period. What exactly that is in man's classification system, I don't know exactly. I think sometimes it's species, like with us, for example. But I'm not sure it always is. So that, here's what that allows, ladies and gentlemen. I believe what the Bible allows is variation within kind, which could be quite a bit. Would you agree with me there's a lot of varieties of dogs, for example? I mean, you can have a dog you can hold in your hand, right? The Chihuahua. And then you can have a Great Dane, and you better not try to hold him in your hand. But they're the same species. Tremendous variety. So all I'm saying to you is don't get hung up that species has to be the drawing line there that you're not going beyond kinds. But there's a drawing line. Listen to me closely. If the Bible teaches anything, it teaches when God created a kind, that's it. There's nothing beyond that kind. It reproduces after its kind. So what is that kind? There's a lot of stuff written about that, and you're welcome to go look at it. But I thought I needed to say that to you. So are dinosaurs in the Bible? Well, I think they're in these broad categories. And you've probably studied Job 40, the behemoth. And again, this is not a biblical um, exegesis lesson. But let me show you some of the things said about behemoth in Job 40. Eats grass like an ox, moves his tail like a cedar, bones like beans of bronze, ribs like bars of iron, the first of the ways of God. I mean, it's a, some kind of a, a massive creature. And some say it's a crocodile or an elephant or a hippopotamus. They don't really fit. So could that be a dinosaur? It's possible. Behemoth, spoken of in Job. And you all know, don't you, that Job is one of the oldest books in the Bible. 
A second passage is in the next chapter. It's called Leviathan. It says, invulnerable to harpoons, spears, swords, darts, javelins. Its undersides are like sharp potsherds. No one would dare stir him up, not able to conquer him. How about that one? Is that a crocodile or maybe a plesiosaur? There's certainly discussion about that. So again, it's not my point tonight to go into detail about a biblical exegesis of what those creatures are. Or were they real creatures or were they just something that he was using for illustration? I take the position they were real creatures and they were probably dinosaurs. So in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, the question then is, did humans and dinosaurs coexist? And that's what I want to talk about a little bit. Well, what about it from the biblical standpoint? Well, in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, the most natural interpretation is they were created on the same day, or at least two days, sea creatures and earth creatures. And what does that mean? If you use the Hebrew word for day in the rest of the Old Testament, and may I make this very clear to you, if you're going to use Scripture properly, you let the Old Testament Scriptures interpret themselves. Let that be a standard for you. So if you take the word day used in Genesis 1 for the fifth day and the sixth day and the other days, and you look at the other usages of that word in the rest of the Old Testament along with expressions like numbers and evening and morning, what it means is a regular solar day normally. That's what it means. Are there some figurative usages of the word day in the Old Testament? There certainly are. But when you take the word day with numbers and the expression like evening and morning, then what you have is a regular solar day. So, for me and my house, I'm going to leave it like that, folks. And if that's the case, and look, let's go to Exodus 20 at least, which is the passage that mentions the Ten Commandments, isn't it? Exodus 20, verse 11 says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So class, the Sabbath day under the law of Moses was what day of the week? Saturday, as we would call it. And was it a regular day? It was. And the other six days that are referenced with it, why would you say they were any different under a normal reading of this passage? So I see no reason biblically to speak of anything other than two days in a row like we would normally speak. Other people put interpretations on these things. And they try to harmonize the Genesis passage with external scientific evidences concerning long ages. So I want to pause right here because we had lots of questions in the course of this thing already about age, and I said we're putting them off till 2 o'clock. So here we go. I want to tell you my position. My position is that we would have no reason even to consider that these are anything other than normal days unless there were some evidence in the natural world to cause us to start thinking otherwise. And there is, ladies and gentlemen, 
evidence in the natural world that sure seems like things are very, very old. There is. And I could make you pages of lists of things that look like, that seem like things are very old. Some folks think because of the evidence from the natural world that seems to be saying that world and the cosmos is very old, we need to figure out what Genesis means to make it fit with that. I understand that effort. I don't buy into any of those efforts at, at this point in time to say that they satisfy the question. One of them is the gap theory you've probably heard of that takes the position that between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-3, before he started saying there is light, there's a big old gap where things were without form and void, and that could have been millions and billions of years where the earth was without form and void. I don't deny that that's a possibility that there was a long time the earth was form and void. God didn't choose to tell us how long that was, and is that part included in day one or not? That's a question, isn't it? I don't know for sure about that answer, but I don't think it's the natural reading. And I prefer to stay with the most natural reading of what the Bible says. And again, I repeat, if there weren't some evidences from the natural world that seem to think things are very, very old and we, that we'd even try to be talking about this. A second one is the day-age theory that the days in Genesis 1 are really long periods of time, each one of them. So day one is not a 24-hour a, uh, day. It's a long period of time. That's a day-age theory, and that each one of those represents long periods of time. I will tell you, when you try to force that position on Genesis 1, you run into all kinds of problems with how in the world that would work. And besides that, it doesn't really fit with what we see in the natural world is that you're trying to explain. So, again, we could spend a long time on day-age theory. I highly recommend you go read about that if you have a question about it. I don't buy it because I think it's an artificial effort to try to make the Bible say something it doesn't say. And it doesn't fit, really, either. And why would you even do it? except trying to force the Bible to say what you think modern science is telling you. A third is the non-consecutive day theory. Suppose they were just six days, but are they consecutive? Maybe there's a million years between day one and day two. And then a million years between day two and day three. That's not counted in the day. It's a regular day, but then there's a million years after that, or two million, or ten million. I say, class, that is an artificial effort to twist the scriptures to say something you think will conform it to what science says. I'm not going there. For me and my house, I want to leave the Bible to be interpreted as in the clearest way possible, closest to what's the natural rendering of the passage, which leaves me with a six-day creation and a seventh day of rest, and not billions of years. <coughs> Am I clear? Here's the problem, one of the problems. 
This is the typical evolutionary view of the geologic column. Surely you've all seen this. It's in textbooks all over the place. And the typical picture is this. Here is modern times up here at the top. And if you go down in the fossil record, down as you dig into the earth, you find different kinds of creatures in these layers that have fossilized. And at the top layers, you have more complex creatures like humans and these high-level animals. And the farther you go down, you get less and less complex creatures. And way down here at the bottom, you have single-celled organisms. <coughs> So, this picture looks like, and by the way, each of these is supposed to be a long, long, long period of time. It looks like over time, if you're counting oldest down here and up to the modern time, that we started with rather simple things which evolved into more complex things over time. And while we're at it, do you see the dinosaurs? They're in Jurassic Park. <laughs> Jurassic was one of the time periods. So Triassic, Jurassic, and Cretaceous are the time periods in the Mesozoic okay, ages that we believe, man believes, dinosaurs existed. And so they would say you find the fossils of these dinosaurs in those geologic periods. Whereas humans don't come along later, simpler creatures down below. That is a challenge. Here's one comment I'd like to make about that. Von Ingen and Castor in their book Geology made the comment that if you took all of those ages that I just showed you, let me just back up. If you took all of those ages and if you took, like for the Cretaceous, if you found the place on Earth where there was the thickest layer of the Cretaceous and the thickest layer on Earth of Jurassic and all of these, because they're all different in all different places, and you stacked them all up, you would have a pile 100 miles high. If all of those were at one place on Earth, the thickest layers of any one of those stacked on top of one another, you'd have a 100 mile high stack. Anybody know what's the deepest canyon on Earth that we can go down into? How about Grand Canyon? Anybody know how deep it is? about a mile and a half. So in terms of physically going down into the lower echelons of the earth and seeing things, this is about the best you can do without drilling. So if this is one and a half miles deep and the total column, if everything were there in every age, it would be 100 miles high. We're only missing 98.5% of the geologic column. And if you've ever taken a, taken a tour of the uh, Grand Canyon, they will tell you that there are missing layers as you go down the Grand Canyon. There are lots of missing layers there in the geologic column. There is no place on Earth, ladies and gentlemen, listen to me closely. There is zero place on Earth where the geologic column exists any one place. It is a construct. It's not a fact, it's an interpretation. Don't believe me about that, you go look for yourself. There is no place on earth that has all of these stacked on top of one another. 
In fact, the Grand Canyon has most of them missing. And to get the others in some kind of sequence, you have to put them together, kind of like, you know, if you had a deck of cards and you knew how, what order they were supposed to be in, you'd stack them up together. How do you know how to stack them? Anybody want to guess on that one? How would you know how to stack them if they're not stacked already? Well, with a deck of cards, you have a two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and, you know, three comes after two, <coughs> and four comes after three, so you, just, you could fit them together. You don't have that out there. So how do you think you do it? Anybody want to take a guess? Partly they use the fossils. You listening, everybody? There are called index fossils for each of these areas. And if you find that index fossil, it is very likely Jurassic. But they have to decide on what the index fossil is. And they use fossils often to help them identify where on this scale you go. And then they turn around and date the fossils by where they placed them. Did you get that? That's a little circular. But it's part of what happens, not all. What else do you think? How about dating? Yeah. There needs to be a way to date these things, which is what I want to spend my next time on, this next time I have right here. If you could date these rocks, right, would that help you? This one's older than that one, so that should be on top of that one. So you're very dependent, if you're going to do this scientifically and accurately, is to have some kind of dating method. One of the dating methods is index fossils. But another one is, as he mentioned, the radiometric dating methods that I'm going to explain to you briefly. Back to this for just a minute. I just want you to know that the geologic column that appears in all these textbooks is not a fact itself. It contains facts, but the whole thing is an interpretation of facts based on an evolutionary worldview, frankly. And it has a lot of, there's questions about how all that fits. So what are some of the notable features of the fossil record? You know, one of the things that evolutionists say is the fossil record is a powerful evidence for the theory of evolution. Because if that is a true picture, it sure looks like it, doesn't it? You'd have to admit that. My answer to it is, and by the way, Darwin recognized this in his own book, it is probably the worst evidence for evolution when you look at the whole picture. Because there's all kinds of problems with it. I have problems with it as a creationist in some ways, but the evolutionist has massive problems with the fossil record. Let me show you why. Here are the key features of the fossil record as we know it. It's filled with fossils that encapsulate information. That's not a problem. There's lots of fossils, millions and millions and millions of them, many of them stacked in uh, places where they haven't even been examined yet. We have no lack of fossils. In Darwin's day in the 1800s, one of his answers to the problems with the fossil record is we just haven't found them yet, and we just need to keep looking. In 2020, we can no longer say that. I told you earlier today, if Darwin were here today and he knew all the massive information we had from fossils, I think he would say, my theory has absolutely broken down. So it is true there are lots of fossils, including dinosaur fossils. The second major feature is the early origin of the phyla. Who remembers? The largest classification other than kingdom is phylum. In other words, 
if you're going to classify all living things, you start at the top with the largest group, the phyla. Let me just show you. Here are the facts about the fossil record that we've discovered in the Cambrian layer, which is the lowest layer up there. This is how it should look if evolution took place, don't you think? You start with the simple-celled organisms, and then they branch out and produce all these different phyla. I mean, isn't that the way it ought to look? That's not the way it looks. This is the way it looks. There's a sudden appearance of a great variety of organisms in the Cambrian period, which is the lowest level on which we find any significant number of fossils. All but one phyla are present in that layer. You see that one right there that's missing? Every other phyla is represented in the Cambrian layer. That means, ladies and gentlemen, that the largest classification of all organisms, every one of them is represented in the Cambrian layer. So it's boom! Not quite like that, but in geologic time, that spreads out a little bit. Are you, how in the world can you explain as an evolutionist the sudden appearance of all those life forms? And may I say to you, another book on my list is called Darwin's Doubt. It's written by Stephen Meyer, the same one that wrote Signature in the Cell. Darwin's Doubt is his other major treatise. It's this thick, and it's all about Darwin's doubt about this. It tore Darwin up, because he knew very well that in the fossil finds they had at that point, every phylum's represented in the Cambrian layer. How does that happen? It ought to be gradual, shouldn't it? You're going to have everything from one-celled organisms all the way up to us. Now, there aren't any humans down there, but our phylum is represented all in one layer. And the other fact is there's hardly anything below that layer in the fossil record. There aren't any fossils at all. So how did that happen? It looks to me like a sudden creation. I mean, that's a better interpretation in my mind, but we can't have that. It's a major challenge for the evolutionary theory, but it is a feature that nobody denies, class. The third feature is that fossils are fully formed when they first appear in the fossil record. Here comes this fossil, and you don't have anything leading up to that showing how it evolved gradually. The standard feature of the fossil record is, boom, there they are. Where'd they come from? Doesn't tell. Those fossils right there are in that formation. There are no intermediates in the fossil record leading up to that. So how'd they get there? I think they were created, folks. There is no background. They were created. Now, how all that fits, I don't have all the answers, but I'll tell you, they have more problems than I do. And the fourth major feature of the fossil record is fossil stasis. Who knows what that means? Fossil stasis. They stop. That's good. Once you get them, they stay the same if you go up the record. Here are the fossils. Boom! And then they stay the same. And then what happens? They become extinct. Now, how does that help the evolutionary theory? It doesn't help it at all. 
But that is a common feature of the fossil record. That is why, ladies and gentlemen, Darwin had nightmares about this. Because he knew good and well it didn't fit, so his answer was, we just haven't found enough fossils yet. Folks, the more fossils we've found, the worse it gets. Don't believe me about that. You go look for yourself. The fossil record does not support the general theory of evolution. It supports limited change, which I believe in. I hope you do too. So well, let me go off on that just a minute again. Kind allows for limited change, ladies and gentlemen. Tremendous variation within kinds. How much that is in every case, I can't answer, but it provides for a tremendous amount of variation. I'm convinced it's because God planned it so we could adjust to different changing environments in all kinds of creatures and survive. I think Darwin was exactly right about that. Limited change by natural selection. So I'm a believer in that. And I think the fossil record supports that notion. But it does not support the notion that all living things came from a common ancestry. And fossil graveyards, by the way, testify to catastrophes, do they not? I mean, how in the world are you going to get 1,600 big old boned animals smashed together in one place and fossilized? I'll tell you how, with water. Things are fossilized in water sediments. And if they're going to fossilize well, it needs to be sudden catastrophes. It is a grand testimony to catastrophes, not gradual change. Looks to me like there was a whole lot of water sometime that trapped a whole bunch of creatures in one place, trapped them, and got them killed and covered up with sediment in a hurry. And here's an interesting, famous mummified hadrosaur named Dakota found by some kid, kids, <laughs> in North Dakota. Can you see the detail on that thing? Here's what they think it looked like. It was discovered in North Dakota in 2006 by an amateur geologist. I've forgotten his name, but he's about your age. He's a fossil hunter. This fossil is over 90% complete with 80% of its skin intact and 35 feet long. And so the common theory is it had a sudden burial 70 million years ago and it's still got skin on it. I don't know about that, folks. I'm telling you, there's some evidences in the fossil record about dinosaurs that sure make them look younger than they tell us they are. How about these? There are lots of these. Nests of eggs. There's eggs with the embryos in them. And here's one up close. Look at that. You think that happened suddenly? Why, it better have. You wouldn't have anything like this. And the eggs aren't broken. These aren't. Some kind of a sudden catastrophe that fossilized those eggs. 
would you say that's a testimony to catastrophe or to gradual change? Where layers of water just gradually went up. No, folks, this was a catastrophe. And they're all over the place. All right. There are over 230 fossil sites around the world that have these kinds of things in them. So dinosaur fossils could be much younger than evolutionists believe. There's evidence from the fossil record, as I've described to you. There's historical evidence of dragon legends in every society. There's physical evidence of carvings and drawings accurately depicting dinosaurs, dinosaur figurines, lots of places. And then there's the Paluxy Riverbed, question mark, question mark, question mark. You know about the Paluxy Riverbed in Texas? Anybody raise your hand if you've seen that? Okay. Well, may I say for myself, for me and my house, I don't ever use that argument. I used it in my one debate with an evolutionist in 1983, and I got slaughtered because I didn't know what I was talking about. So I've done more research since, and I don't believe the evidence is solid enough. It's supposedly the Paluxy Riverbed has human footprints and dinosaur footprints in the same place. There's a lot of question about that by the experts is all I'm going to tell you. I don't use that argument. You go study for yourself. But I do think there's a lot of physical evidence, historical evidence, and even fossil evidence that supports younger ages than they think. So what about this? All right, I've got 10 minutes. I was going to derive for you the equation for radioactivity. Every radioactive material follows an, a mathematical equation called an exponential equation. In other words, it decays at an exponential rate. That's how it happens. And this is a common understanding of how radioactivity works. Radioactive material emits alpha particles or beta particles, and it decays or decomposes into a different element. Tell me one you know about. Radioactive method. Carbon-14 is the one most everybody knows something about. Carbon-14 is a form of carbon. Carbon's normally 12. Carbon-14 is an isotope that is naturally radioactive. That means its nucleus decays by giving off particles without anybody telling it to do it. Just And if it gives off an alpha particle, it's changing its nucleus by a couple of protons. And if it gives off a beta particle, it's casting off an electron, and it increases the number of protons. So there's several ways that decay takes place. But it happens naturally. You know when we discovered radioactivity? Anybody know roughly what time frame that we discovered that radioactivity happens? It was the 1890s. And there was a famous woman associated with it. Anybody know? Madame Curie. Madame Curie. Exactly right. And there were several other famous scientists studying that phenomenon. But it is a fact, ladies and gentlemen, that some substances decay naturally into something else. Which is an amazing thing, because if I may get off the topic here a little bit, I'm a historian historian of science as well. Back in the Middle Ages, we had folks that believed you could change other substances into gold. Kings were interested in that. So they would hire these guys, and they were supposed to go into their labs and work to change substances from one into something else. And, of course, they were a bunch of hucksters. Some of them got hung, and some of them made a lot of money because they fooled people. 
because it wasn't happening. But can we change one substance into another? Nature does it. Now, don't think you're going to get rich off of it. But nature does change one substance into another. So it decays or decomposes into different elements. It does that at a certain rate. So I want to talk to you about that just a minute. Here's the equation I was going to derive for you. You see time right here in the proper units? How old is something? Well, if it's a radioactive substance, it's based on several factors. This K right here is the rate constant for that substance. It depends on how much stuff you have now of the radioactive stuff and how much you started with. You see that? So if you look at this hourglass, this is what you started with. This is the rate at which it's draining or changing, and this is what you end up with, if you can think of it that way. And each of those characteristics determine how old this thing is. So that's a broad introduction. I was going to derive for you that this equation starts with an exponential equation, a equals a0 e to the kt, exponential function. And you can do the math on that function. It's beautiful math. I really wanted you to see it. But these people don't have a board around here. There's nothing to write on. I guess I could write on the Lord's table, but I shouldn't do that. But understand, mathematically, you can derive the equation from exponential to put it in logarithmic form and solve for t, t being the age. All right, let's look at this now. Radio decay tells time like an hourglass. First, the question is, do you know how much uranium lead was present at the beginning? Uranium is one of the naturally radioactive substances in one of its isotopes. In fact, several of its isotopes. So do you know how much was there to start with? That's this. How much uranium and how much lead was there to start with? You see, uranium deteriorates into lead over time. We know that because we've watched it. So, question class, if uranium has a half-life of millions of years, how much uranium did we have in that piece of rock in the first place? Millions of years ago. Nobody knows. Nobody was there to measure it. So how do you get it? You have to make an assumption about rock forms. And you look at certain kinds of rock forms and you say, well, this one looks like it was like that one, and at that one this is what it is, so that's probably what it was when it started. Now, there's some other features you can use, but it's a guess later. It's an assumption. How much stuff was there to start with? That's pretty important, isn't it? Well, you can get ways to get at that, but it, it's built on the assumption that basically things have been the same for millions and billions of years. And that may or may not be so. So when I do this in my math class, I try to show my students that every radioactive dating method is founded on three fundamental assumptions. If the assumptions are not valid, the method falls apart. One of those is how much stuff was there to start with. And you don't know that. 
You can guess at it and have some reasonable guesses, but you don't know it. So there's an assumption built into that one right there. If that one is different from what you think, the whole method is wrong. Are you with me? Second, suppose the opening changed sizes. Would that cause the time to change? If you open that hole more, or if you close it more, well, of course it does. That's parallel to the rate of decay. Now listen to me closely, I don't want to misrepresent anything. I don't know of a single instance where the radioactive decay rate of anything has ever changed. So the assumption is rates of decay for radioactive substances are constant, period. And I know of no evidence to say it isn't, except there's some folks that are guessing that maybe some of those things might have changed, and they give you some reasons for that. So you can go look. Here's the only point I want to make. That constant right there, which is the rate constant, has to be assumed to be constant all the way through, because if it ever changed even one little bit, it changes the whole estimate. You with me? That's assumption number two. The rate constant is actually constant. Third, suppose some of this uranium was gained or lost to the system in some other way. Or some of the lead was gained or lost in some other way. In other words, there was leakage in the system. You started with so much and the uranium is supposed to just decay and all the lead comes from the uranium. Suppose some uranium got in there after you started or got out of there by leaching out some way or another and you lost some. Doesn't that change the whole clock class? And what if the same thing happened to the lead you're producing? Some of it gets out and you lose it. Well, it changes the numerator. That's the third assumption. I call it the leakage effect. If any of those is not correct, the method isn't correct. Now, I can tell you that chemists that do this, physicists, will tell you this is a good reasonable method. And when you use that, you can calculate K, whoops, back, K times the natural log of the amount present now over the amount present at the beginning will give you the time in the proper units. So someone asked a question in one of the previous classes. How do they know it's billions of years old? This is how because some of the half-lives of some of those chemicals are very, very long. And they make these measurements, and it comes out millions and millions of years. Okay? I want to spend just a little time here on carbon-14, because it's the one everybody knows about. And may I tell you that of all the radioactive dating methods, carbon-14 has the most problems because it's dependent on the amount of carbon-14 in the atmosphere, which is produced by cosmic radiation hitting nitrogen. Anybody know what percentage of our atmosphere is nitrogen? About close to 80%. So when our atmosphere has a lot of nitrogen and it is hit by cosmic radiation, some of that changes into carbon-14 by being radiated. And then the carbon-14 is caught up in carbon dioxide, which is taken in by the plants and eaten by the animals and us. And so it spreads carbon-14 throughout the ecosystem. But one of the problems with carbon-14 is that balance in nature. 
there's not always the same amount of carbon-14. It's a difficult thing. If that balance doesn't stay the same, then your beginning amount of carbon-14 is wrong, isn't it? So that's a problem. Secondly, notice here, the half-life of carbon-14 is 5,730 years. That means if you started with 16 atoms of carbon today, in 5,730 years you'd have eight atoms left, half of it. In another half-life, you'd have four left. In another half-life, you'd have two left. Can you see it's cutting it in half each time? That's how it works. Here's another problem with carbon. Look, after about five half-lives, you've got nothing left, right? Because it's got a half, short half-life. So carbon-14 class is useless for anything past about 30,000 30, years. So don't tell me you dated that fossil with carbon-14 to two and a half million years. You did not. Carbon doesn't go back that far. Carbon-14 can only be used for relatively recent things. And even then, it's quite uncertain. So what do you have to do? Listen to me, class. If you're going to date that fossil that's in those rocks, you have to date the rocks, not the fossil. That's a little problematic, too. Because how do you know the rocks are the same age as the fossil trapped in the rock? But that's what you've got to do. So you use uranium thorium or rubidium strontium or other long-term methods to date the fossil by the rock around the fossil to get the older ages. That's problematic. All right, I think I'll skip that one. Carbon-14 dating is not useful past about 30,000 years. Completely fossilized samples cannot be dated by any radioactive methods. You have to date the rock nearest the fossil instead. So understand, when they tell you they found some human fossils over in Africa near some rocks and they date to a million point three years, just know they didn't date those fossils. They dated the rocks under which they found them. That's a whole different thing. And you put some interpretation on that. All right, folks. It's 3 o'clock. That's my lesson on that. Thank you for your kind attention. I hope you learned some things. I'm going to summarize what I believe about time. From a biblical standpoint, I do not wish to try to force the biblical passages to fit what science is telling us today. On the science side, Radioactive dating methods are built on three fundamental assumptions. I'm not sure all of those are valid, which means their dates are not valid either. Other methods that are used in science all depend on the assumption of a constant rate of change of something. And I don't believe they've always been constant. We know in the Bible there was at least one dramatic event that changed everything, wasn't there? So did things get messed up in there? I don't know what all happened there. But you have to base your dates on assumptions class, and I'm not willing to go there with solidity. So where am I today? There are some things that look like long ages in the natural world from the scientific perspective, and I don't believe the Bible allows for it. So how do you harmonize those? And my answer is I do not know today but I'm not changing the Bible to fit modern-day science. You listening? I'm going to let this play out, and maybe I'll ask him after I'm dead. But I'm not forcing modern-day science on Genesis' account when it's not what that says. <laughs>
There is a way to explain it. And you know what I think? I think I'm going to say, dear God, how do you, how do you explain all this? I'm confused. He's going to say, you ignoramus. <laughs> Here's one little simple thing you didn't know. But I don't know what that is at this point. But I do want to be honest about it because I don't want these young people to go study for themselves and think I've said something that doesn't properly represent what we know. Neither should you. I'm being completely open with you about that. But I hope you heard carefully what I said. Okay? Now, questions. Have we, have we handed out cards? Okay. Let's collect cards. And if you need to stand up and shake a little bit, because I can see you're wearing out. It's Sunday afternoon. You had a big lunch. <laughs> and uh, I know how it is sitting there. I'm amazed you stayed awake. Yes, let's come back together. I want to get you out of here as soon as possible. It's Sunday afternoon. <laughs> Nap time. <laughs> At my age, I have to have a nap every Sunday afternoon. I'm sorry. It didn't used to be that way, but it is now. So I have motivation to get you out of here. <laughs> All right, and I have more questions than ever, but that's okay. All right, let's see. Let me see what order I want to take these. So, do things like oil come from something different, or did it all happen at once so there's a finite amount? 
Hmm. There's a question I don't know a whole lot about, but you probably know one of the common theories is that oil came from decayed living matter by being squished over time, over millions of years, and that's why we have it. And I'll have to tell you, I don't know enough about oil to answer that question, but I am convinced that there's a limited amount of that stuff. It's interesting, and you should know this, that uh, geologic column that I showed you, that I said was not a fact but an interpretation of facts, is very useful in finding oil. In other words, they expect to find oil in certain of those layers. And one of them is where all those dinosaurs were. They kind of go for oil in that area. And so when they go looking around the world, they use that as a guide, which for an evolutionist says, even though it's an interpretation, it's a good interpretation and it works. And by the way, when you're making money on oil and you have something like that that works, you kind of get where you like it, right? So I have to confess to you, that does work pretty well for the oil seekers because they have a theory as to where it should be found. But there's definitely a limited amount. And did it all happen at once? Well, I don't know the answer to that. You'll have to go look on somebody else. I can't help you with that one. And I told you, I'm not afraid to say I don't know. Back to Friday night's macro-level discussion. Is global warming affecting the Earth's just right balance in any meaningful way, or is it overblown? <laughs> this is political. <laughs> but it can be, and I don't want it to go there. I will just give you my opinion, and please understand, I'm no expert on global warming. I Make no claim to that. I have followed it a little bit, and it is a fact, ladies and gentlemen, as I understand it, that the average temperature around the Earth over the last 20 to 40 years has been doing this. I don't think there's any argument about that, that the overall temperature on average has gone up for the last 20 or 30 years. Now, how much has it gone up? Well, maybe a degree or a degree and a half. Some people say two, two and a half. Well, average temperature has gone up two and a half degrees. Well, some people would tell you that is ca catastrophic, that the whole state of Florida is going to be underwater. I don't believe that that's the case yet, but I'm no expert on global warming. Here's the real question. How much do humans have to do with that? Right? Isn't that the real question? And my opinion is relatively small amount and I've done a little bit of research on this, I know we have impacted the temperature of the Earth some just because we've produced a lot of pollution. But have we done enough to cause significant global warming over the whole world as we're being accused by many today? I'm not so sure about that. So that's just an opinion, and I don't have a lot of heavy evidence behind it because I haven't studied it deeply enough. And uh, by the way, it might be of interest to you that I talked to Nathan Freeman not long ago, who is a little more expert on this than I am, in fact, a lot more, and asked him for the best reading material he knew about. And I want to ask you, too, if any of you have done some special reading on this, I'd love to get more of it and learn more. And you should, too, if you have an interest, because there's a lot of material out there. And there are varying opinions, as you know, even among the experts on that subject. So 
Was that a good non-answer? I'd make a good politician. All right, would the catastrophe that covered the dino eggs and embryos be the flood? Let me just tell you that these kinds of things that are trapped and fossilized that quickly had to happen underwater, period. Fossils are found in sedimentary layers. Sedimentary layers are absolutely tied to water. So a flood is a perfectly natural explanation of sudden catastrophic fossilization. That's the best answer I can give. If so, wouldn't Noah take two of the dinos with him? <laughs> well, think about that. Whenever the flood happened, relative to all these things and how it fit, I think the best answer to that is whatever dinosaurs went onto the ark would have been the kind, not species necessarily, that did not take up so much space seems to me. And then after they came off of the ark, they evolved into whatever limits that kind had that leave us with what we've got today. Because did you notice on the cladogram, there's a lot of things in reptilia that are still here. So we have the leftovers of some dinosaurs. Exactly what that was. We haven't <coughs> been given the privy to that in the Bible, and it's not so clear from science either, but I have an idea. There were some of the smaller types on the ark. Okay, the dinosaurs, do you agree that Methuselah was truly 969 years old? Well, the Bible said he was. And how in the world could you get to be 969? I wish I knew. Yeah, <laughs> we'll wait and you and I are going to get there, aren't we, Don? My daddy died at 102, which is pretty good these days. I hope to get there at least. No, I believe that something happened at the flood that also changed things. In the Bible, didn't ages drop dramatically after the flood? They did. So it was part of what's going on here, if we understand that correctly, that changed things about the natural world. What exactly all that was, I don't have a good answer for you. But something changed dramatically. So yes, I think it was 969 years. And if you've done the arithmetic on there, and by the way, I should have added this a while ago. If God meant for us to know exactly how old the earth is and creation, when creation was, he sure made it hard. Even in the Bible. Did you know that? Have you ever tried to do what Bishop Usher did and trace backwards in the Bible to figure out how old things are and how all that fits together? It is a massive job. It is not easy. The Bible doesn't just lay it out and say, now this is how it all fits together by exact times. Now you can get close, I think. But one of the challenges is in the, the, the uh, what's the word I want? The lineup of people in descendants order. Huh? The genealogies. That's the word I can think of. The genealogies in the Bible, are they complete? Well, we know for a fact some of them are, like the one in Matthew chapter 1. It reads like it's complete, but it isn't, because when you compare it with the Old Testament, there's missing generations. 
in the account in Matthew 1. So it's either a mistake or God never intend for that, intended for that genealogy to be complete, right? That's one of the challenges. Are all the genealogies in the Bible like that one, not intended to be complete, but just to tell you where everything came from? And if that's the case, then you have a bigger, even bigger problem of figuring age. But I will tell you, it doesn't allow for billions of years. No way. In fact, if they are complete, then Methuselah died the year of the flood, didn't he? If you've ever calculated that. If that is a complete genealogy, he died the year of the flood. You didn't ask that, but that's what's thrown in free of charge. <laughs> Some have advanced the theory that dinosaurs became extinct as a result of an asteroid or meteor crashing into the Earth. Others have suggested that perhaps the flood could have altered Earth's conditions so that dinosaurs didn't survive in such a change. What are your thoughts as a result, as a reasonable explanation for their extinction? Well, as a Bible believer, I prefer the flood answer, though I don't understand that either, fully, how that would happen. But that makes more sense to me as something that dramatically changed what was going on on Earth. We know it did in a lot of other ways. So it makes sense that it did it in that way. The asteroid theory, I think, has some significance, but it sure seems overblown to me. So that's the best I can do with that one. What is your definition of science? Whew. That is loaded. I'll tell you why it's loaded. Because that whole thing gets at the essence of what's allowed to be taught in science classrooms. My idea of science is that it is a methodology for studying the natural world that depends first on observation, organization of material, and then working from that base inductively to a possible explanation using the best information you can get from the natural world. That's how I define science and how it works. In my mind, folks, that does not exclude coming up with a conclusion or a hypothesis that includes an intelligent designer. That's where I get off, see, with folks who say science can only have a natural explanation, not if the evidence leads you toward intelligent design, which it does a lot. And we, by the way, do that in a number of fields of science. For example, in anthropology, You've got to find out, is that rock something that came by natural causes, or did somebody mess with that? Isn't that searching for intelligent design? I mean, there's books this thick written on how you examine rocks and determine if they were tools or not. Well, what's that about? If it's a rock that was messed with to make a form that allows you to use it as a tool, that's an intelligent rock, right? I mean, it's a source of intelligence from intelligence, and not just natural causes. I would argue science does that kind of reasoning all the time. So science should include the possibility of intelligent design. I hope that's good enough. Because fossilization happens in water, why do scientists say it was a meteor that killed the dinosaurs? Can sudden death by fire also preserve fossils? Wouldn't, it, wouldn't the bones be burned up? That's an excellent question. I don't think a catastrophe by a meteor that spread over the earth is going to do the same thing that sedimentary, rock, uh, sedimentary layers will do in sudden. Now, if you get enough disturbance, I guess they would argue that enough 
stuff landed on top of things to cover them up without water, but it could also disturb the water. So maybe a combination of those. <clears throat> okay, how do scientists answer? Vegetation, plants, trees bearing fruit were created on one on the third day, sun, moon, and stars on the fourth day. How could vegetation, plants, and trees line for a million years without the sun, moon, and stars? I told you that the day-age theory to try to explain Genesis 1 using science as the background is a big problem. I'm glad you identified that. If the vegetation was created on day three and there's no sun till day four and that was 10 million years later or whatever, how's that work? I don't think it does. What I'm saying is the day-age theory doesn't fit and it doesn't explain what they're trying to explain, much less twisting what the Bible says. So, good question, and the answer is it doesn't work. Okay, I think that's it. Let's see, I had a few here from the other day and want to make sure I didn't leave anything out. How do scientists explain irreducible complexity? Did we answer that this morning? Tell me we did. <laughs> how long from Genesis 1 to now? Have I answered that? Best I know how. Um... Do you take a position on the age of the earth? Do you think it's flexibility on this contentious issue? Have I allowed some flexibility here, folks? But I'm not going to change what the Bible says to fit modern-day science, because what happens when they've changed their minds later? How does man determine the earth is billions of years old? We answered that, I think. Okay. Any other oral questions? You just got a burning desire to ask? It is, yes, okay. <laughs> I knew I was getting in trouble if I did that. Oh, mine? Uh, is that on the bibliography? I don't know. I left a bibliography, by the way. I think I told you that. And uh, Byron has already put it out on the website, and he's put it at the end of every lecture that has all my stuff on it. And I'll tell you what, I'll add my uh, email address to that if you would like. Okay. Yes, sir. Biblically, it sounds like something like that in the early chapters of Genesis. I think it's entirely possible. Well, in that case, it would have been prior to the flood. I think it's entirely possible. And there's some evidence for it. That it divided, that it was at one time together, and that it divided. I think there's some pretty good evidence for that. All right, folks, I'm worn out. <laughs> You're probably more worn out than I am. <laughs> but thank you for your kind attention. It's been such a joy. And I please, I'm asking for Marilyn and me. Come and see us in Tampa, would you please? Not all at once. <laughs> and let us know you're coming. <laughs> but we'd love to be able to host you and to be gracious to you as you've been so gracious to me. So I send her thank you. And... Uh, We'd love to get to know you better. So thank you for this, and uh, we're going to turn it over to our other gentleman now. Let me get my glass, a cup of water here. <clears throat> thank you. Thanks, bud.